everybody. Good to see you all. Good to see some of you. I haven't seen some of you in a while, which is good. Awesome to have you here. A couple of things before I get rolling. Uh, number one, I just remind you, Christmas Eve service will be here. Uh, we're going to do that 7 to 8 on Christmas Eve, which is the 24th, in case you didn't know, right? So 24th. So come on out for that. Um, the really cool part of that is that we do this kind of reception thing afterwards, and that's always a lot of fun. And so um, come be a part of the extended church family and, uh, and celebrate the birth of Jesus together that way um, so that you are ready to rock and roll either for your evening gift-giving exchange um, or, your, or your morning. Either way, you'll be set if you've been here. So keep that in mind. Also, I wanted to let you know that um, on New Year's Eve, um, a week later, uh, I'm going to be doing something at Thrive Space which is 81st in Aspen, if you haven't been there. Um, We're going to have some interactive things for you to do. I'll probably be there for just a couple of hours. The details we're still trying to work out. But um, the thought is is that you can come, you can do some of the interactives, and eventually do communion. We'll have communion available for you. We've kind of spent this year chasing after the presence of God, and so what a great way to end 2019 and to begin 2020 Again, chasing after the presence of God and just invite you to do that. So watch for um, some more details coming out about that as they begin to develop. But I wanted to make sure that that got on your calendar. Um, It won't be at midnight. It will be uh, much earlier than that, but it'll be an hour or two where you can come and go as you please and just uh, try to spend some time with God. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and punch that in now, but make sure that you hit the mute button so that it doesn't start automatically reading it out loud, because I'm going to be reading it. So, anyway, Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. Recently, I had a conversation with someone about how we read, how we interpret, how we understand the Bible. Now, I want to hit a brief pause, and I want to make a cautionary statement before I say next. I don't want anybody to believe that you can't open the Bible, read it, understand it, live it out without a master's degree, because I don't, I don't believe that's true, 
Okay, I think that, that the Holy Spirit comes and does an awful lot of work in us and allows us to read some things and, and to absorb these things to actually live them out. Um, but I also think at the same time, we have to hold on to what we're reading somewhat loosely. Because oftentimes, the further away we get from the source material, from the source of the, of the text, um, we, we, we lose some understanding of what's happening. And I, and I find this kind of troubling. Uh, I don't know how to say this, but I find it troubling because it, it seems like we fall into this trap that the Bible was written in some type of vacuum. And it wasn't. There is a history. There is a culture that informs what's been written here. So, um, some of you have heard me say this many times, but every time we open the book, we're tourists. There is cultural customs and there are things that are happening here that influence the way the writers actually wrote. Does this make sense? And so you have to have a certain understanding in order to, to really... Um, get at what the writer was communicating to that audience and eventually to us, okay? So this wasn't written in a vacuum, therefore you may not read it in a vacuum. Understand? So you have to keep that in mind. But, but again, I don't, I don't want you to think you can't open the Bible and like, well, I don't have a history course and I don't know how to do it. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that as you read it, please understand there may be more to the story and you hold on to your interpreta- interpretations a little bit, a little more loosely. I mean, I still do that, and I, I've got an advanced degree in this stuff, but I still know that there are bits and pieces of the history that I'm, I'm still puzzling through and trying to understand. So, so there's this context to it. And um, I was thinking about, about this a little bit, um, especially in, in relation to what's happening in, in this particular passage. Because there's some nuances in this passage that make it, um, a little more real, I think. And, and, and how many times have you actually heard the Christmas story? How many times? Now, take your age. Don't say it out loud, all right? And I know that you've at least heard it once a year if you grew up in the church. Most likely, if you grew up in any type of Christian church, you've heard it more than once over the Christmas season because not only did you hear the pastor preach about it, you heard it in Sunday school too, right? So there's many times. And oftentimes, and I'll tell you, it's so easy to do. When you've heard the thing over and over again, you just gloss over some stuff. And sometimes we have to go back and dig and say, oh, wait a minute, there's something else that's happening here. Because again, it wasn't written in a vacuum. There's some things that are happening that a first century reader would go, oh, yeah, of course, that's just how it worked. And here we are in the 21st century going, I have no idea what that means. And so we, gotta, we had to parse this out just a little bit. And so what I wanted to share with you is kind of this general pattern of first century marriage practices. Woo! <laughs> right? But no, hear me out, because this is really quite interesting. Here's the normal pattern. Okay, The normal pattern is that you would have two families and they would typically arrange a marriage. Not always, but very often. Aren't you glad we don't do everything biblically still? Right? Okay. So you have an arranged type of marriage. 
And so there's some negotiation that goes back and forth. And there's typically some type of dowry that's paid um, by the bride's family to the groom's family. And this takes different forms. It could be in the form of gold and silver. It could be in the form of, you know, sheep and goats. It could be whatever. But there's some kind of dowry that's paid. And then they go into this period of time called a betrothal. And so um, in kind of modern terms, we would call it engagement. But back then, it has a little more weight to it. Because a betrothal period was, was part of a contract that was essentially entered into by these two families. And so, for all practical reasons, the bride and groom were married under the law. There just weren't any fringe benefits to it. Right? There's no intimacy that's allowed. And very often, this betrothal period, the length of it was dependent on the ability of the groom to create a home for his bride and thus his new family. Not always, but very often. So if you've got a lazy groom, that's going to be a long betrothal period, right? Upshot for Mary and Joseph, Joseph was a carpenter. Man, he probably rocked that out pretty quick, I would think. I don't know. The point is, is that you've got this period of time called a betrothal that carries all kinds of legal weight to it, even though it's not fully complete. And so then there'd be a wedding ceremony, and then eventually what we would call a homecoming, where the groom would take the bride into his house or to his father's house, whatever the case may be, whatever was decided upon during the arrangement. Does this make sense? So it's It uses terms that we're kind of familiar with, but there's some nuances to it. There's some texture to it that adds some some depth to all this. We need to to learn. Um, Interestingly enough, though, when the uh, bride came into the groom's home, or the groom's father's home, as the case often um, was, um, you have to think in terms of what it would be like for that bride. Think about this for a moment. Leaving her family and going to be with his family, that is when a bride, a young woman, is most vulnerable emotionally. Which is why there's the passage that we find in Genesis. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. There is a provision in the Jewish law to protect the young woman. So don't tell me that God does not elevate the status of women because he does way back in Genesis keep that in mind if there is this moment when she enters his home and she is most vulnerable and that's when he is supposed to protect her keep that in mind now this context helps us understand what's happening in this passage it's really important that we understand it This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be remarried to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There are two things that are happening here. First, she was pledged. That means it was the betrothal period. The wedding had not taken place. She had not entered his home. She's still living with her family. Okay? Legally, they are together. Physically, they are not. So no benefits. 
for either one of them, other than the legal ones. And then, of course, uh-oh, she's found to be pregnant. So one of two things occurred. Either Joseph and Mary did something that they weren't supposed to do, or Mary's got a thing for someone else, and they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. Those are the two options that are available, at least in the minds of most people. And let's be honest, if you and I were living in that day and age, it would be our options. We would think the exact same way. And so here we have this set of circumstances. And it, it affects so much. When you have a situation like this, it not only affects the reputations of the bride and groom, but their respective families. Also, inheritance laws, which are a big deal, okay? It's a big part of all of this, the transfer of property and wealth from family to family. Now, obviously, Mary and Joseph didn't have a whole lot of that, but still, you can see where that would become a big issue. So there is social status, there is, there is legality to it, there's all of these things that are now wrapped up in this, and it's all just a mess because Mary's pregnant. This is huge. This is a big deal. Oh, and by the way, most estimates of Nazareth, the town, the area that, that Mary and Joseph lived in, was a, was a city of maybe four or 500 people. So not only are we talking about mess, we're talking about small town mess. How many of you grown up in a small town and know what that means? Mm-hmm, yeah, right? Yeah, you know. Because everybody and everybody else's business. That's what happens in a small town. But notice this. This is interesting to me in verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and in some translations it's because he was a righteous man. Uh, but the, the language that's used here is really about this idea of being faithful to the Torah, to the law. And, and he was faithful, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now this is fascinating, because there's something that's happening here that, you, that we have to understand. It means he is faithful to the Torah, not just in the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. He doesn't want to, to expose her to that public disgrace, even though he had every right to. So underneath the Torah, underneath the law, he could have humiliated her and called her all sorts of names and divorced her publicly and made a big spectacle of the whole things. And by the way, that would have been justice. But what does it say? He didn't want to do that to her. And instead, he chose mercy. Quietly divorcing in this particular case was merciful on his part. And I think it foreshadows not just his heart, but also the heart of the Lord. Justice versus mercy. He chose mercy. And I like this part too. We get some insight into his character. After he had considered this, I like this word, consider, because it means to ponder. Um, it means to deliberate. And, and there's actually uh, one connotation that's carried with it is to turn things over in your mind. Have you ever done that? 
Yet you had something you had to do and you just keep turning it over and 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 your spouse is sitting there going, oh my gosh, I wish they'd just quit, right? <laughs> you know, and you sleepless nights and that sort of thing. That's kind of the idea that's, that's, um, that's happening here. But after you consider this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a what? What's the word? Dream. This becomes very important later on in the story. Very important because Matthew is up to something here. We're gonna hear about that in a couple of weeks. The Lord uh, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Interesting choice of words to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, he was afraid of how he would appear. Not just um, to the people around him, but also uh, he was afraid of the, what the Lord might do. To be afraid of his standing under the Torah, under the law. And here the Lord is stepping in saying, no, 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 no. I'm taking that one off the table. There's something else that's happening here. There's a, there's a bigger picture. There's something else. Pay attention to it. It's an interesting choice of words. Don't be afraid. Hang on. There's more to this. By the way, <laughs> when you follow God, there's always more to the story. Always more to the story. And so then what happens is the, the um, Lord says she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Which by the way, um, I'll mention this, um, the Old Testament word for Jesus is Joshua, which means salvation. So give him the name Jesus or Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. You see what he did there? <laughs> He explained not only what his, uh, what his name was to be, but what it also meant. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin or young woman will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he references an Old Testament prophet that Joseph would have known. This is a common prophecy about the Messiah and he's connecting and he's in this dream. He's saying, hey, don't be afraid because all that stuff that you've been waiting for, yeah, yeah, it's coming. Hang in there. There's a bigger picture, something else. And I love how he talks about Emmanuel, which means God with us. You want to talk about being present. Yes, the Lord is present, not only in the dream, but also in physicality. And so Joseph woke up and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home. That's that homecoming part to be his wife. He went through with the wedding. He did not divorce her, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph followed through. He was faithful not only to the Torah, but he was also faithful to his Lord who appeared to him in a dream. And all of a sudden, this begins to have a little more texture to it. This has a little more depth to it and we begin to understand that these are real people that we don't just read about but they actually had emotions and fears and hurts and anxiety over the same kinds of things that we do. More so because of the type of culture that they actually lived in. Mm. Quick note, Matthew is writing his gospel to skeptical Jews. I love this picture. <laughs> Skeptical Jews. And so the emphasis that he's writing to is on the Father. Luke picks up Mary's story, but Matthew focuses on Joseph. 
and some other bits and pieces. And so when Matthew writes his gospel, he's writing with a very Jewish bent to it. And so it's, it's important to the interpretive process and to our understanding of the text to know that there are some Jewish things that are happening here. And it makes that feel a little more alive. So let me ask you the question. Have you ever experienced one of those moments where you had a tough decision you had to make and you've been turning it over in your mind and it's keeping you up at night? Most likely somebody else created the problem, right? But you got to deal with the consequences. It's usually the way it works. And it's in your lap. And the fact of the matter is you really just want to avoid it and hope it goes away. Oh, come on, you're in church. Be honest. That's happened to you, hasn't it? Of course. Oh, and if it hasn't, it will. Just hang in there. It will. It'll happen. It's okay. Maybe um, it was a hurtful comment that somebody made to you or someone else, and you just can't let it go. Maybe, maybe you witnessed some unethical behavior, and you can't let it slide. You know you got to say something about it. You don't want to say something about it. We have a phrase in, in our house. It's like, oh, please don't make me be that guy or i got to talk to you about this. You know what it's like. Maybe it was a damaging event and you keep reliving it over and over in your mind and you continue to suffer. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it's a family relationship and you can't get away from it, and yay, it's Christmas time too. <laughs> that often happens this time of year. You got some tension within the family, and nobody wants to talk about it, but it's like literally this elephant in the room, you know? Yeah. Now, maybe your set of circumstances, or my set of circumstances, aren't quite like Mary and Joseph's. Maybe it's a little more like Jerry Springer, but it's no less real, right? I mean, you got to deal with the context you live in because your life doesn't happen in a vacuum just like the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. And you still have to live these kinds of things out. And so the, the question that you're asking is, what do I do about all this? You're considering it in your mind. You're pondering it. It's rolling over and over. And you're thinking about it. You really want it to go away, but it's, it's not. It's just sitting there. And I think one of the things that the story of Joseph shows us, one of the things, and other things too, but the main one is, is is that God is present in your uncertainty. Keep that in mind when you're not sure of how this is all going to play out, but that God is present in your uncertainty too. Not only in your uncertainty, but, but of course, when you are uncertain, He is there. He hasn't left. Now, He might be a little quiet about it, which drives me crazy. But the point is, is that I never doubt I never doubt that he's there. He is present. And my, my guess is that when I'm most uncertain, he is most present. And he's inviting each one of us to lean in a little bit more. Now, to be fair, I would really like it if, if he would show up to me in a dream. Wouldn't you take that? Or a burning bush? Is that too much? I mean, you did it for Moses. Why can't you do it for me, right? <laughs> 
Instead, I get strange dreams, like the one I had the other night where I borrowed Robert Carrion's truck and no, nothing happened to it, it was okay. <laughs> but you really need to get the brakes fixed, I'm just saying. <laughs> Weird dreams. You know, for those of you who are Bugs Bunny fans, it's like I'll never mix radish juice and carrot juice again. You know, oh, what a night. I don't understand this, how this happens. Those are the dreams I get. I want dreams like this. But the fact of the matter is, that regardless of the dream, regardless of what's happening, God is present in your uncertainty. And I think Joseph shows us that. And there's, there is likely something more at work. And I, I couldn't help it, but um, I was reminded of, of this verse, and I'm totally taking this out of context, but, but trust me, this will make some sense. And we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, now think about that for just a moment. Don't just gloss over that. It's like, oh, God just works everything out for good. Mm-mm-mm-mm. No. He works all things for the good for those who love him for those who acknowledge the fact that he is present and lean into that presence, for those who love him, because it's really what love is. Love is leaning into those things, into that relationship that you know is there, and you have been called according to his purposes. It means you're actually following God, and you're trying to check in with him and continually live that type of life. That's when those things begin to work. But here's the reason why. Because we serve a God of redemption, and this happens to me from time to time. Somebody will say, why did you know, somebody have to die? Or why did this person get sick? Or why did this particular thing happen? Where was God in those moments? It's like, oh, time out, time out, time out. Let me give you another perspective. Bad things happen because people make choices against God. And you have to deal with it. And yes, it's uncertain. But the question is, do you serve a God of redemption? And what can God do to redeem this set of circumstances? Because the one thing that we see over and over again is God can take tragedy and do amazing things with it. God can take really odd, social, awkward circumstances like an unwed pregnant mom and bring about the Savior of the world. He restores and he renews, he reconciles, he redeems. He can even take death and make it our salvation. Wow. So God is present in our uncertainty. See, when you follow God, you have something that most people don't. You have possibility or something redemptive, something new. And so, whatever your circumstances is in this holiday, (laughs) and I'm sure you have them, whether it's a strenuous relationship or or like in our case, when uh, somebody stole a gift off of our front porch. Porch pirates. (laughs) You know, in the grand scheme of things. Can either be mad about it or I can say, well, there might be another picture here that I don't see. And the way forward for all of us is to chase after him, to acknowledge that he is present. 
and you know you can pray or you can journal that's what I do or you can meditate or you can fast or whatever it is for you we've been talking about this now for over a year and how you're going to lean into the presence and you need to decide how you're going to do that but but the way forward in all of those things in your uncertainty is to lean in further harder deeper to him and by the way it's a great idea to ask others to join you in that Here's a simple way to do it. Simple way. Whatever the issue is, find one person that you trust and just ask, hey, sometime over the next two weeks before Christmas, would you mind, would you mind praying about this one thing? You don't have to give them all the details. Just give them enough so that they can pray. I have never met a person who would say no to that, especially not in this church. Just Ask him, just do it once. Would you mind? You're leaning in and trusting that God's gonna work in those circumstances, even when you're uncertain. Hey, you know what? This is a stressful time of year because of work, because of family, whatever. Do you just mind, you know, praying for us? Yes. And if you're, if you're strong enough or, you know, or, or feel like it, Put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them right there. Otherwise, take it to your prayer closet. Pray for them. It's okay. The point is that you're praying. You're helping them lean in to the present God, the God who is present in uncertainty. Don't be afraid to pray for each other. Now, from time to time, we are aware um, that our friends are going through things, that our extended church family are going through things. Sometimes it's because we're nosy. It's me. Uh, sometimes it's because we just overhear things. Sometimes we just know because we know the people. You don't have to wait for them to ask you to pray. I know you're busy with your own Christmas stuff and your own celebration and your own gift wrapping and present buying and all that. I know you are. But some night before your head hits the pillow and you think of somebody somewhere within your sphere of influence, whether it's with the church or work or neighborhood or whatever, would you just say, oh God, would you be Prince of Peace over that? Oh God, would you be present in a way that they would understand? Oh God, would you move? Don't wait for them. Pray for them anyway. Because one thing you can be certain about is that they will appreciate you praying for them in their uncertainty.